That is true, isn't it? Scripture does tell us to greet with a holy kiss, but I don't know if I've ever seen a church that actually practices that. Second Peter chapter 2. You should have a, a section there for, to take notes. I'm just going to grab a water while you're flipping. So I would invite you to take notes as the Holy Spirit leads you this morning. So some information that will help you understand where we are. Um, Peter is the shepherd of God's people, isn't he? And a shepherd. And he's writing to a group of churches in what we know is modern-day Turkey, a very large area. And they're struggling. They're struggling from within and then without. From within, they're false teachers who are teaching a lot of erroneous and heretical and really just bad stuff about the second coming of Jesus. But these false teachers are living such a licentious, which is the biblical word, or sinful lifestyle that the church is being persecuted from the community. And so his encouragement to them in chapter 1 is, God's given you through his power all things for life and godliness... And therefore, grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing them towards a growth in grace through the knowledge of Christ. Now here in chapter 2 where we are this morning, he begins to turn his attention towards the false prophets. And he gives three examples of the judgment of the wicked and two examples of the keeping of the righteous. And what we see here is God is the keeper of mankind. He he keeps his people to eternally enjoy him. And then on the other side of that, he keeps the wicked to face his judgment. God's grace will not fail in your life if you're a believer. Even when it faces the greatest oppositions that wants to root it out. And on the flip side... God's just judgment against man will never fail as well. So let's just read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 to around 10. Or sorry, verse 4. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemns them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous life, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, For as that righteous man lived amongst them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, verse 9, his conclusion. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We'll stop there. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, many of us have the exact same question that the early church did here. 
I am facing a lot of trials and difficulties. And there are many believers in this room who are in the midst of an immense trial in one form or another. And they're wondering, will God keep me? Will my faith fail? Will I go to the way of the world? Do I have the strength to persevere? And on the other hand, will God judge the evil and the wicked that I see around? And sometimes, Lord, we confess that we want to take that judgment upon ourselves. Lord, I pray right now that you would comfort us with the great promise that you have begun a work and you will finish the work in our life, that you will keep us, that we are yours now and forever through our Savior Christ. And on the flip side of that, that you will judge evil and wickedness and sin in the world, and that you are good to do it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the question that, that Jesus is answering is probably the same one that you've asked many times and I have, and that is, where is God in the midst of my trials, in the midst of my suffering? And on the flip side of that is, what's he going to do to them? Well, how can they get away and how can they prosper when they are doing this and everybody sees it? Now, in modern Christianity, the church often believes that our lives should be without suffering, and therefore we often have no answer for this, except for what I heard one guy say, well, God's just in heaven crying for you. That gives me no comfort, does it? A Christian in a concentration camp in Germany says this about our American Christianity. She says, I love American Christians, but they try to have Christianity without a cross. They think that if something goes wrong in their lives, or if they have to go to the hospital, or they don't make money, or they are unloved, that they must be out of the will of God. In fact, all these things may be happening because they are in the will of God, she says. Now, I can remember when I lived in Asia, and I got in a debate one time with a very smart, a much smarter than me, Peace Corps worker, and I was passionate, and I was def- trying to defend and lay out my faith to him. And I said, you know, God protects me from all things. And he said, really? Well, don't Christians get sick? Don't Christians die? Don't Christians get cancer? Don't Christians get martyred? And as a young believer, I wasn't ready for that. I said, that's a good point. I need to rethink that. Now, does God bless his people? Yes, financially, physically, emotionally, yes, often. But he never promises us comfort or a life without suffering. He promises to meet our needs, absolutely. He promises something far greater than just our comfort in this world. He promises to keep you in the midst of the greatest challenges that you face in this life. He will keep you. Second Peter therefore lays out that argument. Peter says, my friends, God is not asleep. And he gives three examples of the judgment upon wickedness, fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the flood of Noah's day. And then he gives two examples of God keeping his people, Lot and Noah, when they face the greatest of trials. Now he summarizes it in verse 9. He gives these three ifs, ifs, if, if this, if this, if this, and then he gives his conclusion in verse 9. Listen. Listen. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter's response to their challenges and to yours are that God knows how to keep His people and at the same time, He knows how to punish the wicked. It is a promise of persevering grace, not a promise of escape from the world. Often the church is giving people the wrong expectations of Christianity. We tell people that if they will just receive Jesus, then all their wildest dreams will come true. That their lives will be wealthy, healthy, and wise, and be protected under this great bubble of blessing. But rather, sometimes it's just the opposite, isn't it? When you find yourself facing challenges like Lot, where wickedness is bearing down upon your home and your life, or like Noah, where God has called you to do something the world says is crazy, or maybe like your life where your marriage is in real tatters and a hard place, or your children are not responding anymore and not obeying, or you can't pay the bills because you've lost your job, and you feel like I am on the brink of struggle, depression, and losing my faith. You see, it's during these times that His promise is, I will keep you, I will rescue you, and at the same time, I will judge the wickedness and sins of the world. You don't have to. So here's the main idea today, and it comes from an old minister named John Flavel. The enemy under his feet will not destroy the children in his arms. The enemy under his feet, the flesh, the world, the devil, will not destroy or remove the children, that means us, in his arms. Two things we want to see. All right, ready to dive in? Great, we're getting there. Point one, trust God to pass judgment as he chooses. Point one, trust God to pass judgment as he chooses. Now you can imagine the question, when's God going to come and judge these false teachers? Don't you see, Peter, they're destroying the work of the gospel? Don't you see what's happening in the church? And Peter's response is very simple. God's not asleep. Now he gives us three examples of how, historically, God is not asleep. He says, first, consider the angels. Look there in your Bibles with me at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, notice, he did not spare, if, first of three ifs, he did not spare the angels. Now, he is arguing for judgment from something that God loves very much. So he's talking first about those who are closest to God, the very angels themselves. Let me just explain this a bit. Because sometimes there's confusion about angels. Angels are ministering spirits who worship the Creator while they want to do His will. To us, they are just fellow servants of God. Revelation 19.10 Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but the angel said to me, you must not do that because I am a fellow servant with you. They are the upper part of God's family, made to dwell, to worship, and to serve him in heaven. We are the lower part of his family, created in his image uniquely to worship, enjoy, and walk with him in creation here on earth. They are his ministers, his deacons, before his throne in heaven. And together we are one family of God's creation and servants, 
created to serve the high king, both placed under the headship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. But God created, who created and cares for his angels, did not spare them when they sinned. Now, we don't know a whole lot about their fall. The the scripture is about the fall and the redemption of man. But what we do know is God sent no Savior to angels. Salvation doesn't seem to be offered to them. We know that amongst the angels, many sinned and turned against God, but God chose not to redeem them. Rather, the Scripture tells us they are going to face His judgment. Look what He says there. He will cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Those who sinned against God were sent to hell to be constrained or kept in utter darkness away from the presence of God until Christ comes again and then He will judge all things, which doesn't mean just all things here on earth. It means He will be the final and the full judge of sin amongst men and sin amongst angels. In other words, God's creation above and God's creation below will be judged by Christ. Ephesians 1.10 All things in heaven and earth have been brought under Him. Now Peter's second argument for God's judgment then moves to false teachers. So his first is, look, if God will judge and commit to hell His creation above, then He will certainly do it to false teachers in the church. Now he moves to his second argument. Look in your Bibles with me. He moves to the flood in verse 5. Verse 5. If He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God brought a flood of judgment upon what he calls the world of the ungodly. And those scriptures in Genesis 6-5 describe about as strong as you could possibly describe the sin and brokenness of that world. This is what it says. Every inclinations of the thoughts of man's heart was evil all the time. (laughs) You can't really say it any stronger than that. Every inclination of their hearts was evil. When? All the time. And his point is, if God brought judgment in the form of a flood upon the wickedness of the ancient world, how much more will he also bring eternal judgment upon the wickedness of those who claim Christ and are destroying his church with sensuality and false teachers? Now, his final then, he moves from his swift judgment that came with water to his third is Sodom and Gomorrah, a judgment of fire. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, So maybe you know the story in Genesis 19. Abraham's nephew Lot moved to one of the five great cities on the Jordan Plains called Sodom and Gomorrah. There, one day while sitting in the shade of the gate, two messengers from God or angels came to visit him. He wouldn't let them sleep out. He demanded they come into his home. And that night, a horde or mob of people came from the town and they demanded to have the men physically or sexually. This is what Genesis 19.24 says. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. It was a complete destruction. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos all cite this destruction as an example of God's judgment against sin. And Peter says, this is an example of what God is going to do to the ungodly. And so what he's saying as a whole is learn from the history of the Scripture. God is not asleep. He judges all things, and His judgment upon sin and wickedness will come quickly, especially the wickedness of the false prophets that the church is struggling with. In Charles Dickens' book, Tale of Two Cities, he says this about the world's view of God's judgment. Listen. If the day of judgment had only been ascertained to be a dress day, everybody there would have been eternally correct. What does that mean? He's saying people think that God's final judgment will just be like a dress day where you put on your finest clothes and you come out and you're just applauded by God for doing such great things and being such a great person. Nothing really happens, says Dickens. And he says that's what our culture believes. And Peter's pointing to three examples of how utterly wrong that is. Listen, my friends. The truth is God can't be good and a God we can worship. Unless he gets really angry at sin and evil. Please take note of this. Let's say you go and you visit Cambodia, and you're there and you're walking through a small village, and there you see a group of men, and they're doing the most horrific things physically, emotionally, to a young girl. And there's a police officer standing there and watching, and you're utterly appalled, and you say, You pull the police officer aside and you say, aren't you going to step in and stop them? What are you doing? And the man says, with indifference, it is not good, it is not bad, it is what it is. I see no reason to stop it. And he continues on his way. Listen, when someone is passive towards evil and sin, You can never call them good. To be good and love justice is at the same time to hate evil and sin and want to see it punished. We hate Hitler and Stalin and the wickedness of the world because we are made in the image of God who is good and He hates it. A righteous God must love goodness and hate evil with a passion. If sin destroys people's lives if it eliminates happiness, if it robs God of His glory, then an infinitely good God must infinitely hate evil in all of its forms. If God was passive towards sin like that police officer was in evil, you would never say He is good. We would not be here wanting to worship Him because He would not be God. Think about it like this. When we say God will not or should not judge mankind, which is what you hear so often in the church and in the world, what we are really saying is there should be no ultimate right or wrong. There should be no triumph of good over evil. Good will remain rewarded, and evil will go eternally unpunished. When the time comes for people to die, the serial killer and the tiny baby, 
the child molester and the gracious old lady, the ruthless dictator and the gentle nurse, together what they have been and done will be wiped out of existence. It will not matter, and ultimately the goodness of God will be compromised because he does not hate evil. When you're arguing against judgment, that's what you're arguing for. And I think the reason people take that argument is because when they examine their own hearts, there is sin there, and we know that that sin will be judged. And the hope of the believer and everyone who is here who trusts Christ is yes, we know that God is good and God will judge the sin of my life, but my hope is fully and wholly in the fact that Jesus Christ took that judgment upon the cross. And so on one hand, we can embrace the fact that God is just and He sent Christ to redeem us who deserve His judgment, as does the world. Point two, the enemy under his feet will never destroy the children in his arms. Let's move from considering the judgment of God to considering how he keeps his righteous people. Point two, trust God to keep his children. Trust God to keep his children. If you'll look in your Bibles with me at verse five. Notice what it says there about Noah. Peter now moves from three examples of judgment to two examples of God keeping the righteous. He preserved Noah, a messenger of righteousness. His point is very clear and very simple. God knows how to keep his people eternally, even when he decides to bring judgment in the form of a flood upon the earth. He knows how to preserve the righteous, he knows how to keep those who love him. Consider Noah. Second, consider Lot. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He moves now from rescuing Noah from the waters to rescuing Lot from the horde of people that are pressing in upon him. Now, before we move on, I just want to address a lot of things because, one thing here, because he calls Lot righteous. And I've had many people tell me, Rusty, Lot offered his daughters up to get treated in the worst kind of way by a mob of men, how can he be called righteous? And undoubtedly, Lot was saved by, by grace through faith, just like we are. He is a sinner. But I want to just explain that very fast. You must understand Middle East hospitality. If you lived in the Middle East, all the resources of the host must be used for the protection of your guests. Lot, who knew the wickedness of the town, he pressed these messengers, come into my home. And when they did, at all costs, they were under his protection. He had to be willing to sacrifice all he had to protect them. Now, when the wicked men came and they demanded his guests to bring them out so we can know them physically, he steps out and he first pleads with them. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly when they would not and certainly there was more going on, he says this, which we find so hard, and rightfully so. I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let them bring them out and do with them as you please. Notice, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Here's the distress and the righteousness that Peter describes. 
when he calls Lot righteous. Why would he offer his daughters to be treated like that? Well, he tells us. Because he brought these men under his roof. This is what the mob presses in and demands to have these men. They are under his protection, he says. And he says, I will sacrifice everything I have. And after he pleads with them and they say no, he turns to everything he has. And for us, in our culture, we say that's atrocious and that's awful. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, they would say he is acting righteously. And that's the reason Peter says he walked in righteousness. Because he was willing to give all he had to keep and protect those under his care. When God says he rescued Lot, he means there was a crazed mob at the door threatening to rape him, his guests, and of course his daughters. And the angels grabbed him and pulled him out of the town. And Peter is saying that if God can rescue Lot and his daughters from such an awful situation, his judgment of sulfur and fire, verse 9, doesn't he know how to rescue the godly from trials? Doesn't he know how to rescue you and how to rescue me? How do we think and live this? How do we think and live this? How do we take this from an understanding that, yes, God knows how to rescue me, and yes, God knows how to judge, and he is good and he will do it, to how this affects my life this week? Well, Jesus says something very similar in John ten twenty seven. He says it like this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This promise gives you freedom from fear that my flesh will be conquered by grace or grace will be conquered by my flesh one day or that your really difficult times will cause you one day to leave the faith. All the opposition of God and His saving grace in your life will not be overthrown. Where Christ truly dwells in a person's life, all the enemies of the world will not remove him. Why? Last thing. You will persevere because Christ persevered. You will persevere because Christ persevered. Christianity is not like a cornfield. It's like an apple tree. What in the world are you talking about, Rusty? What I mean is we're not on individual stalks with individual root systems that go into the ground. We're we're a tree where we're all connected to one trunk. And here's why you persevere in your faith. Because we are born into Adam, all men. He is the trunk of mankind. Scripture says we are in him, which means his judgment, his sin, his condemnation is passed to all men. And guess what? When you are born again, when you put your faith in Christ, you go to a new tree. (laughs) You go to being in Christ. And you're joined to him. And because he persevered in the faith, because he died for your sins, because he rose again, his resurrection is your resurrection. You will persevere in the faith because you are joined to him. You are an apple on his tree, you might say. And his sap flows to you. He is in you and he is keeping you. And so God says, look, I know the hardest things face your life. 
but you're joined to Christ, and the promise is twofold. One, he will judge righteously the wickedness that affects you. And secondly, he will keep you. He will rescue you from the hardest things because you're joined to Christ by faith. Lord, I just praise you right now, and I thank you. Um, There are two great heads of the world. Adam, mankind, Lord, he is our federal head. But thank you, Lord, that when we're reborn, we're like an apple that goes and joins a different tree. Suddenly we are in Christ, we're joined to Christ, and we died in Christ. Christ died the death that we deserve. All of my sin and judgment placed upon Him. And His resurrection was my resurrection, our resurrection. You will keep us because Christ rose again and ascended and made a way for the believer, the first fruits to be saved. And I just praise You for that. Lord, I pray for every believer in this room when we face the most difficult challenges, when we say, how can we endure? How can we carry on? Lord, that our eyes would not be fixed on our own weakness, but upon Jesus Christ and His strength and the fact that we are joined in Him. And lastly, God, let us not be a people who wants to take judgment in our own hands. But we trust you, the just judge of all things. You are not asleep, and you will judge every person in every situation rightly. Lord, and we praise you that our judgment went to another. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I ask the elders to come forward, please? While these men are preparing the table, I want to just give you a brief explanation from the Lord's Supper. What it is, what it's not. And I'd like to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. 